Hello, everybody. I'm Chase Jarvis, and welcome to another episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live. This is where I sit down with the world's top creatives, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders and do my damnedest to unpack actionable and valuable insights that'll help you live your dreams in career, in hobby, and in life. My guest today is one of literally, and I hate when people use that wrong, <laughs> I'm using it right here, as in literally one of the top designers on the planet, Mr. Stefan Sagmeister. Now, Sagmeister has designed for, first of all, a huge range of clients. That's one of the things that is so impressive is his range. Uh, folks like the Rolling Stones, HBO, the Guggenheim. He's also won a grant, actually, he's won, I think, two Grammy Awards, which you're right now going like, wait a minute, isn't that reserved for musicians? Well, actually, that's one of the things that he has won a Grammy for is designing album covers for music. Super, super cool stuff. He's written numerous books, and he's basically, this guy has won every damn design award out there. His exhibitions, he's also a fine artist. God, he's got one called The Happy Show, which I think is the number one most popular graphic design installation of all time at a museum. Uh, it's, he's also got a film out called The Happiness Happiness Project, I think, Happiness Show, also of the same name, roughly, and that was an amazing film that was launched at the Tribeca Film Festival this year. We also talk about work-life balance. I'm not shy about bringing you all along on my adventures on Snapchat and all the social worlds about working really, really hard, playing hard. And one of the things that I get asked a lot is about like, oh, how do you balance your work and your life? Well, Sagmeister has this down and, and basically he wrote the book about this. Not This is not literally, <laughs> this is conceptually. He wrote the conceptual book about how to take time off as a creative. In short, he takes an entire year off every seven years and he does a lot of really badass stuff with that year off. I'll let him tell you more about it in the episode, but I think you'll find that totally fascinating. Um, we also talk about being different. You've heard me talk about being different, not just better. We also talk about one of the ways that you can ideate around creativity. This is a simple exercise from a guy named Edward DeBono who talks about trying to see, say, you're going to be designing tennis shoes. What if you looked at a tennis shoe design through the eyes of a two liter bottle of soda, for example, and how you use one object to think really critically about designing some other object. It is so powerful. It's a really great uh, exercise for ideation. So we cover those things, many others. I mentioned he's a prolific author. I have his books on my coffee table at home, uh, and he's just an all around fascinating, insightful, heartfelt, earnest guy. Love this conversation. But before we get into the show, I wanna give a quick shout out to our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Creative Live. Creative Live is the world's largest hub for online creative education. Education in photo, video, art design, music and audio, and the ability to make a living and a life in those disciplines. It's the highest quality, highly curated classes taught by the world's top experts. We're talking Pulitzer Prize winners, Oscar winners, Grammy Award winners, New York Times bestselling authors, and the best entrepreneurs of our time. Names like Richard Branson, Mark Cuban, Ariana Huffington are on the platform. And you get classes taught from guys like Tim Ferriss, Lewis Howes, uh, Ramit Sethi. I, again, I could list uh, a thousand other names of the top photographers, designers, musicians, 
the best in class, you get it. Now, right now, if you're familiar with me and my work, you might be saying, well, wait a minute, isn't that a company that you started, Chase? Well, yes, it is. In fact, Creative Live makes this entire podcast possible. And in fact, all of my longstanding Chase Jarvis Live shows. Creative Live has millions of students around the world. More than 2 billion minutes of education have been consumed on that video platform. So, you know, that's a little bit of the sort of the what and the how behind Creative Live. But here's the why, which I think is so critical. Creative Live exists to help you live your dreams in career, hobby, and life. In short, I started Creative Live with a bunch of really committed friends because we saw a, a big need in the world. We wanted to help our peers and friends and, and folks out there in the world transition to new careers, live new dreams, take the leap, if you will, into an entirely different sort of direction where you can leave that job, maybe your job with the man, and strike out on your own. I also saw my peers in the photo and the design world needing to sort of up their skills and get ahead. And I saw friends who were happily working at great companies but wanted to pursue their hobby to a next level that you know might someday parlay into a side hustle. So we built that platform. Uh, these classes at Creative Live are the most highly and authentically produced of any of the online video platforms you'll experience. The top experts, it's all shot with 48 cameras, all in HD, beautifully presented and accessible on desktop, tablet, mobile. You know I stand for quality and that's what Creative Live uh, puts out. To that end, I have also taken it upon myself to curate a handful of my very favorite classes and mix them in with some of the top performing classes on Creative Live. And I'll bake that into a landing page called creativelive.com slash hustle just for you. This community listens to our podcast here. So you should go there and you should check that out as a special thank you for being a podcast listener. If you find a class that you love, either from the ones that I've curated or elsewhere on the site, and you want to buy it, during checkout, enter the code CHASER. That's my name plus an R, just C-H-A-S-E-R. And do that during checkout and you'll get 25% off your order. Uh, I think that's awesome and I hope you do too. So thanks very much for checking it out. Let me know what you think. Now that's it for the sponsors. Uh, now let's get into the show. All right. Welcome to the show. Thanks again for joining us all Thank the way. You. Uh, we came across the country to sit down and talk to you. Very, very happy to be here in New York, your hometown. Mm -hmm. Happy to be here too. It's still my favorite city in the world. It's an incredible city. And actually, I want, I'd like to go into, uh, so before we started, just, just a moment ago as we were uh, just turning on the cameras, Stefan's phone started dinging and he said, oh, that's a joke. And what do you, I, I don't understand what's happening. Well, uh, we have uh, uh, an exhibition running right now in Vienna called The Happy Show. And one of the many things that's in there is a, sort of like a big push button in one of the walls. And is you it push just, just a random button? In a it's a, a button with an arrow and it says push this. And you push the button and out of the wall comes a little card. Uh, and that gives you sort of like a prompt of what to do next in the exhibition. You know, all sorts of things. And one of the cards says, text the joke to this number. And it's my cell phone number. So I get tons and tons <laughs> of jokes all the time. Uh, do people ever call the number? Do you uh, get random? Here and there, but quite rarely. It's actually, it's, it's surprising how very well behaved people are. Like in the beginning, I thought, oh my God, like, you know, we'll what have to I change done? my number afterwards because, like, you know, people will call it all the time. And it's not the case at all. And I get some, some really, really excellent jokes. Yeah, of course you've got it. Yeah. A, you've got an installation in Vienna right now. B, you've wired it up so that you can entertain yourself throughout the day. That's brilliant. Talk to me about the exhibition. So it's the Happiness Show. It's it's traveled a little bit, right? It uh, it is it's 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 eight stop. 
So wow. it's actually this weekend ending in Vienna will go on but to Frankfurt. And I am, no pun intended, happy to say that it is the, uh, the most successful uh, graphic design show in the history of the universe, meaning it now has 350,000 visitors. Wow. Which is, uh, I think that even in a regular show, like even in the world of yeah. MoMA, yeah. very, very big. Uh, wow. And it's just been incredibly embraced, meaning I literally, more so than that number, I think what actually counts to me is that I literally get letters every day. And not just, uh, you know, like one-liners, yeah. but like, you know, where people sit down and write a page or two on, you know, how the show had an effect on them. Wow. Including, you know, 15-year-old boys who kissed their first girls because they <laughs> finally overcame their fear, prompted by something that was said in the exhibit. So it's uh, from, um, like, I've long had this dance, or been in the studio, had this dance that, you know, what does it mean to do design that's meaningful? You know, that's Meaning, actually yeah. worthwhile to do. Like, what, how, do you, how do you define that? And I think that the, the quickest uh, way to say this would be if, it, if we can design something that helps somebody or delights somebody. Help and, in, delight. and in some, in some uh, rare instances, maybe one can do both. And I can say now from, from results that the Happy Show did both to a good number of people. 350,000. Well, there's certainly a lot of that's probably being attached to your name, so people are going to see your work. It's, uh, you've had a long history of successful but exhibitions. But that's not necessarily true, I would say. That I think that uh, in Vienna, possibly because, yes, like, you know, yes, your our studio is known. Yes. Uh, in, let's say, you know, the show was in Vancouver. Our studio is not well known in Vancouver, you know, specifically, and these are, these are, you know, in Vancouver, it's the Museum of Vancouver, so this is not like, uh, you know, it's not a design museum, yes, there will be some, dis some, yeah, some design, design people sure. come around, but this is, you know, also a general audience. But the city is, it's very design-centric, is it not? I mean, it's like, leans way into architecture and... Uh, Vienna is, is, you mean? No, I'm talking, even Vancouver. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that there is a, there is a certain amount of that, yes. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, think absolutely. you're also being incredibly humble. Oh, because I'm, I'm actually not a humble person. <laughs> I have to admit, I'm not. Yeah, yeah. Well, congratulations. The topic then, let's talk about the topic. So if it's not Stefan, uh, it's... Is it happiness? Is that what's attracting people? You know, the interesting thing is that... Are we, we not happy and people are seeking it? Is that yeah, it's... Uh, uh, I definitely expected when we moved into Vienna that we would get a lot of criticism. You know, as in, this guy has lived in the States too long, his brain got soft. Uh, you know, he's talking about <laughs> happiness, who gives a shit? Like, I definitely... Because... It is very Vienna, Austrian. To yeah, like no, that, in yeah. Vienna there's still a pride in being miserable. Like, you know, <laughs> there is still sort of like this thought pattern that... If you're happy, you're clearly stupid because you're not, um, you don't understand the seriousness of what it means to be alive. Uh, you know, this started with Freud, who quite famously said, you know, all we can hope for in life is a move from uh, hilarious misery to, un to common unhappiness. Like, that's sort of our goal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I'm, uh, like, I think we were all very surprised at that it would be actually even more successful in Vienna as it was in some of the American cities. And I, my guess, like my now in retrospect guess, would be that yeah. this has something to do with the fact that they get much less of that information. 
and that it's a bigger, it has therefore bigger impact or it has a bigger novelty, yeah. as easy as that. Now we have in, in three weeks, well, the, the Happy Show really was the, the, sort of like the small cousin project that came out of the bigger thing, which was the documentary film on happiness called The Happy Film. I want to go there right now. Let's go there. Uh, and that thing is really finally done. <laughs> that after. thing, you're talking about that thing. Oh, <laughs> the thing, it's seven years, yes? Yeah, seven years. Uh, oh my gosh. And uh, Does it feel like you're giving birth right now after seven years? You've been, or has it been gestating? Or has it, has it been, you've been working on it, putting stuff out for seven years, which, you know. Well, I think that there was just a lot of stupidity and uh, inexperience uh, on my part that led to it being such a long project. Uh, many things having to be redone and redone and redone. If you're seeing it, you'll be surprised. You'll be like, what the fuck did he work for seven years on that one for? <laughs> like, you know, it's like, you know, it doesn't look, doesn't look that work intensive to me, but we did uh, work for that long. And it's, uh, we'll see. It's, uh, we got uh, lucky enough to get into Tribeca, so we'll show it in our hometown. Congratulations. On, in uh, April? April 16, yeah, uh, is the premiere. So soon, three weeks. Maybe we'll uh, release this video on April 15th. That would be wonderful. That would be wonderful. Noted. Yeah. Kim, April 15th. Yeah. So uh, I'm definitely, you know, looking forward to that. Uh, we'll see how it does. Uh, you know, I'm a big believer in, in projects ultimately living on their quality. So if it's a good film, which I really can't say because I'm too close to it, yeah. it will be fine. If it's a bad film, which is absolutely possible, it will die a very fast and quick death, or it will whatever it will do. So, but how is it that I've seen sec sections of it? I've seen yeah. pieces. Have you been sort of releasing pieces over time, or is it something that I saw because uh, I, I saw you talk? Um, I think that we basically we showed little pieces, like you know, specifically the more designy pieces uh -huh. in talks and yeah. things, and uh, I think the. The, the title sequence got quite a lot of hits on YouTube or things like that. Yeah, because it's beautiful. Uh, so the, and those are not really the pieces that I'm not necessarily worried about. Yeah. But you know, there is, I think in filmmaking, you know, we started out as trying to make a film on happiness. That didn't work quite quickly because the subject was just so gigantic. You know, everything could exactly. be part of this. Yeah, like, you know, coffee could be part of it, water could be part of it, my shoes could be part of it. anything can go in there. So uh, a year into it, we decided, let's just make a film on my own happiness because that at least I'm an expert on. Like I can really talk, I'm the world's number one expert on my own happiness. Uh, the difficulty with that, and that literally unbeknownst to me, so like two or three years into that, I discovered I'm actually making a film on me. Because in order for that to work, it had to be somewhat of a personal film. Yeah. And another thing that I discovered was that, you know, we had hundreds of hours of footage, that all of the stuff where I looked good in was kind of boring. And all of the stuff that I looked really shitty in was kind of interesting. So, uh, when we cut the film, I didn't look all that good, which is easy Well, you said to earlier you have a big ego, so how is that to wrestle with? Well, that's, it's something to wrestle with. 
basically like it's easier to say sit here on the couch and say well I didn't look so good but when we were actually editing and I'm looking at this thing and I really appear like an asshole it's sort of like hmm. do I really want that like am I really working that hard to basically give that message to the world uh, it's a uh, so yeah, there is, there is, I don't know, conflict. Conflict. Conflict, yeah. That's part of what makes a good film, though. Stephanie. Possibly. Possibly, yeah. Let's go back. Uh, so for the folks who, um, I, I think you're very, very well known, and certainly in our audience, the people who are on the other side of these cameras are people who are creative. They self-identify as creative or aspiring to be. Yeah. They might be closet and looking to go from zero to one. Um, so for the, fee the folks, that the very few folks probably out there, can you give me a little bit of a nutshell on your background mm -hmm. and uh, your path? Uh, one of the things that I'm most excited about this time now than ever before is that there's a million paths to go. You used to just have to get in, to go to school, become a designer, graduate, mm -hmm. work for a firm, work for a firm, and then start your own thing. Mm -hmm. um, maybe that was your path, but maybe it wasn't. So share, share with me, if you would, your sort of trajectory. So I'm Austrian. I grew up in a very small town, very pretty town in the Austrian Alps, close to a lake in between the mountains. Bergens. Uh, Bergens, yeah. So still, I uh, love to go back there. I'm back there five, six times a year. My, all my brothers and sisters are there. I was the youngest of a very large family of six kids. Uh, started with 14 or 15 to write for a little magazine and discovered quickly that I actually enjoyed doing the layout for that magazine better than the writing. And that put some sort of design bug in my head. Was also I was playing a little bit in bands, but not very good ones. And uh, from there, got interested in album covers. And that sort of like seemed a juicy thing to pursue. And I did go to design school. Uh, I actually love design school. Like for me, the switch from regular high school, where I had to learn things that I was not really interested in, mm -hmm. to going to university and actually pursuing what I really was interested in was a dream. Like I really, like I loved design school. Was there school. any pressure to do something other than what you loved? From my, from my parents? From anywhere? Mm, Culturally, mm, your parents, your family? Not really, because I was the youngest. So my, my they, were, they were exhausted. They were like, do no. whatever you want. We're tired. And my parents had a store, like they had a sort of like a, a men's clothing store, mm -hmm. which two of my brothers had already gone in. Okay. So that was, and it was one store, so it was like there was no need for a third person to go in. So I was actually, from that point of view, pretty free to choose of what I wanted to do. Uh, I also had a granddad who was a learned sign painter, which you know, at the end of the 19th century was basically a graphic designer. The yeah. graphic design as a profession mm -hmm. didn't really exist. And his dad, so my great-granddad, didn't allow him to really uh, be that, but forced ah. him to take over the store, the same store that my family, that yeah. now my nephew just took over. Uh, and so there was definitely sort of like a more supportive streak in my parents. Uh, did that, uh, then, Got a scholarship to study some more in, in, in New York, and then I did a master's degree in New York. So I, I basically, this was What's, from what, what kind of scholarship? And it was a, uh, a Fulbright scholarship. So it was a. I knew that. I was. Just, I just wanted to hear it from him. That is, it's an incredible uh, opportunity. Did, was that something that you sought out? Was it? Did you specifically want that kind of a scholarship so it would give you freedom to pursue your dreams? No, that was all basically happenstance and luck. Wow. Like it's how we had uh, uh, as students. We had uh, designed posters for a very well-known uh, theater in Vienna. Okay. And when I had 
by, through another happenstance applied for that Fulbright scholarship, it turned out that the judges on that jury were all big theater goers and they were very surprised that the posters that they knew for the, for the place that they had gone to were designed by the students. So uh, that basically clinched the deal. And of course, you know, I was 24, was 24 to get two fully paid years in New York City, Incredible. where you, all you have to do is like attend a couple of classes and do that classwork, but you're basically in New York with uh, some serious extra time on your hand to explore and try and do. It was fantastic. You know, couldn't have been better. Was that the objective to get the scholarship? Did you want to do exactly that? Yes, yeah. absolutely. I actually, I definitely wanted New York City. I had actually gotten three months earlier a Fulbright for the Art Institute of Chicago and refused to go. Where Not the, one Fulbright, two Fulbrights. We are the, we are the guys Stefan. said you will never, ever, ever get another thing. If you, if you say it, like they thought it was unheard of. And I said, well, I've been to New York once and I've been to Chicago once and to me Chicago was the clear number two. So if I'm going to the States, I want to go to the number one city, not to the number two. Uh, and so for me, the scholarship was much more about the city than it was about the school itself. Yes. Now that I know much more, the school in Chicago would actually have been better than the school in New York. But, <laughs> you know, I didn't know that. Of course. Yeah. So you find yourself in New York City. And uh, uh, did a, another year sort of like of work experience. You could do that. Had to go back to, to Vienna because there was a two-year home residency requirement that came with the scholarship. Uh, you had to basically enlighten the people at home you with all the back, stuff that you've learned. Knowledge. Sure. Exactly. Uh, did uh, civil service there because Austria still has a draft, so I had to do the, the mm -hmm. alternative to the military service. Went to Hong Kong, did two very commercial years there. I founded a design group for a big, for the largest ad agency in Hong Kong. Learned about all the stuff that I never wanted to do again in my life. And then uh, came, came back here. Uh, Worked for my hero for half a year for Tibor Kalman, uh, who was, you know, that was the, like, that was the pinnacle in my point of view of where graphics were at the time. And then I opened my own place and in 93. Sagmeister Inc. That was Sagmeister Inc. for a long time and now, of course, was uh, renamed four years ago into Sagmeister and Volch uh, right because I have a young partner, Jessica Volch. Excellent. Yeah. All right. So... One of the things that, as we're talking about, there's the group that's zero to one and finding out your, your path. So the scholarship path, there's a study abroad, there's, all, there's, there's adventure, there's travel, there's service, there's going to a job that you hated. I'm trying mm -hmm. to deconstruct this a little yep. bit. There's going to a job that you hated. Two years, I think so many people that, uh, I guess this is a question that I get, I think that Creative Live gets a lot is, oh man, I wanna, I want to become this and that there's this belief that it's a straight line from mm -hmm. where you decide that you want to be or become something and then achieving it. Uh, has that, does that match your experience? I mean, I just listened to you. You had to go all over the world, literally, three, three different countries. You had to take two or three different jobs. One of them that you loved, it sounds like, mm -hmm. uh, working for your, your, your mentor. Yeah, your mentor. Yep. Um, is, this, is this standard? Or is this, are you the anomaly or is this the way it is when you're trying to make a go in the creative world? I mean, I think that what you pointed out before is definitely true. I think there's all sorts of ways, yeah. all sorts of ways. I know designers who never went to school, Tibor being, being one of them, Incredible. Uh, and did fantastically. And there's people like me who love design school and uh, went that route. So, I mean, I think that there is all sorts of ways, but I would say, but 
from a repeatability point of view, what worked really well for me is having pockets of nothingness in between for that, that allow for redirecting. Ooh, keep going. Uh, in, in my case, like I can get very much bogged down in the day to day. And so the fact that I was, you know, four years in Vienna studying, then three years in New York, then a year back in Vienna, then two years in Hong Kong, then uh, there were always in between those times, you know, like between Hong Kong and New York, I went three months to Sri Lanka. And there was, I did some work in Sri Lanka, but there was also time to reorient, like, you know, to like figure out what is it that I really want to do and go for that. Or after Amon Company, it was not immediately that I said, okay, this is next, but I had like, you know, two or three months to like figure this out. And to the point where I kind of institutionalized this, you know, like even now that the studio is 23 years old, 93, yeah, 23 years. Um, I'm doing a sabbatical every seven years. This, uh, I'm going to hijack this just for a second. The first time we actually met in person was in Seattle at a, at a dinner, a dinner mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. 10. Yeah. And I remember you telling me a story about the, the taking a year off. You, you, you decided that you want to do it and you were afraid that it was going to be the end of your design career. And mm -hmm. ironically, as you told me that night, that was the thing that it was like a, a catapult yeah. for making you more recognized. Yeah. So g give me a little context around that. I found that fascinating. The thing that you were most scared of actually was the biggest asset. Well, basically this was, you know, Studios founded in 93, uh, in the year, so in 99, around 99, I really felt, even though it was my studio, I had made all the decisions. I was sort of frustrated with that we were repetitive in what we did. Uh, not quite happy with the quality of the work and I ultimately thought I should do this but felt bad because if you remember 99 was sort of like the really the height of the first internet boom oh, so yeah. everybody was completely busy it was New York was booming everybody was making a shitload of money and I felt if I close the studio now this is just gonna be so unprofessional it's gonna look like, you know, the clients will think, are you nuts? Like, you know, in times like this, oh, uh, this is just crazy. And so I pondered this for, I think I went forwards and backwards on this for about a year until I realized that if I don't do it, I'm going to be in this sort of vicious circle where the work is gonna continue to get worse, which will make me even more unhappy, which will be a downward spiral. So I said, I'm just gonna do it. And Basically, the opposite happened. The, uh, the, none of the clients thought it was unprofessional. The normal reaction was, uh, I would love to do this myself. That was the, 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 that was the most common client reaction. Two, many of them were completely willing to accommodate this. I mean, I gave them all a long time warning, so we all could work around it. Some people, including Lou Reed, actually moved his uh, album release, so I could still do the cover oh. afterwards. Uh, That's so, a story I mean, in and of itself. This That's was uh, uh, incredibly accommodating. Uh, and the strangest thing that happened, like one of my bigger side fears were like, you know, we had a seven year period of building the reputation of the studio, which at that time was good. And I felt we we're gonna be forgotten immediately. Like, you know, specifically in these boom times, it's just, I will have to build up the studio again. And ironically, 
we got much more press for not working than we've ever got for working <laughs> to the point where fellow designers after the year came up to me and said, like, you know, clearly this was like a marketing gimmick. No, you've been like, you've been like, you know, secretly in there working your ass off. This was just what you told to the press. Like they literally thought I made it up because it had gotten it so, so much press. Yeah. But it's not like that, you know, it's not like that we had a PR person or that I made a press release or any of that. It was just that it was apparently an unusual story that people were interested in and they had called up. And when, if somebody had called up and said, well, we would like to do something about this, well, I said, yeah, then do something about it. But that's, there was nothing that we seeked or anything like that. Okay, I got two things. I'm trying to hold a pin in two different ideas at the same time. One is the idea of being different. Presumably that's what became the thing that was talked about, was you were doing a thing, everyone else was zigging, and it was the time where everyone else was making, making hay, as we say, because the getting was good, mm -hmm. and you stopped. So is it just being different that got that talked about, or was it literally the time off and people were jealous because of it was a cultural thing, or, and the reason I'm trying to, if you think about this as a specific example, the general application is like, is different a thing we should aim for. I, I advocate people trying not just to be better, but to try and be different. But is this a case of that, or am I sort of misadvising? I think there's it? two things. One is probably a little bit the being different thing, yeah. but probably more importantly, I think that many people in their heart felt that even if they can't quite see how to make that happen, they would like to see. They would like to make that happen. And uh, meaning I feel that I, you know, in earlier times when I was 20 thought I was unbelievably different from everybody else and I actually found that I'm pretty mainstream, I'm pretty similar to other people and specifically the research that we did for the Happy Film, I could see that so many of the things that I thought of my, that were my own individual character quirks were actually mass character quirks that were, that I was surprised to see that they were gigantic studies in the mainstream that proved that most people are exactly like that. And uh, so since then, I found it allowable to see if I really feel some way that probably many people feel that way. And I really felt and still feel that way that if I look at the, if I look back at the years, years, uh, meaning years as a working person. Yep. The years where we, that we were financially very successful were never the ones where I felt the best. The years where I felt the best were the years where we did the highest quality work. So quality is clearly important to you. You said something earlier. This is one of the things I wanted to put a pin in. I'd say dramatically successful, Fulbright scholarship, working for the best design and designers in the world outputting some of the highest quality design, working for the best musical artists, having them change their release schedule to accommodate you, and yet you said something that I am attaching myself to, which is you didn't like the work. You didn't feel it was that strong. So how does someone, or why does someone, um, again, I, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in the, the mindset of someone who's listening to this, like, oh my God, Stefan Sagmeister, not satisfied at the very top of the design game. How is that? I mean, do you just have a ruthless self-editing mode that you're always in? Or is that something that you actively took a breath, stepped back, 
looked at the work obje like, uh, as objectively as you could and made a decision? Or is it, is it something that's always, is it, is it that voice inside your head at 3 a.m. that's telling you you're not good enough? Or is it something that you objectively stood back and looked at? Well, I think it, it changes over time. I think I got milder now with, with age. Uh, probably more forgiving towards myself. Uh, the first sabbatical, I probably was harder with myself. If I look back at the bad work now that I remember thinking, this is just a repeat of something I did four years ago. I have to stamp that out. I cannot repeat myself in that way or form. Uh, I would probably now be a little bit more, I would be more forgiving, I think. Uh, I also, at that point, I think, was still in slightly in that motion that every piece that we're doing needs to be known. And, oh, I was sort of like, I still was at that cusp. Now, in the meantime, I found out that that actually is humanly impossible. Like, you cannot create a new direction for every piece that you're doing. And I think that the people who tried that, and there are people who tried that, including myself yes. for a while, wind up either stealing from history, like, you know, you do whatever, 60s Playboy shoots now, <laughs> and then you do whatever, you know, 20s uh, uh, still thing there, and then you, like, you do that. And shuffling, sure. And we know the names Yes. In photography, who do that? Yes. Uh, or, which is, it would be worse, is you're basically stealing from your colleagues. I think it's just, it's now that I have, you know, much more of a, of a distance, I would say that it is impossible to create a new direction for every project. I used to do that with my talks, try and give a different talk on photography, whether, you know, just, uh, Anyone who hired me got a unique thing because I felt yeah. sort of almost a moral obligation yeah. as a creator to create something for this particular audience, and it used to just crush me, crush me. I, I mean, I, it wasn't even about mixing up the order of yeah. my photos. It was entirely new stories, entirely new thesis, entirely new POV. Uh, I found it. Maybe that's that same piece of us. And is it? Do you think that's a common thing, or is it? A, is it a creative? Um, is it a crutch, or is it a? A self-sabotage? What is it? I think it's a. I think it has something to do with youth. Yeah. Uh, I remember uh, a design company that I quite admire uh, going in a talk, and uh, afterwards there was a question of the audience, sort of like accusing them of sort of like milking their own style, and they basically had a stance of saying like we developed this language, and this is the language that you talk to, and I at that time still thought this was a cheap cop out. I don't anymore. I actually think, no, they really did develop a unique language. And there is, or I would say this, ultimately, in the, when I'm completely stepping back, I still prefer the changers over the state samers. I do. Like, I am a bigger fan of Warhol than I'm of Liechtenstein. Like, you know, Liechtenstein basically, once he developed this comic Dots, language, bright colors. Uh, he went down that route. But still, if you look at recent Chelsea exhibits, there's quite some variety as far as techniques is concerned. You know, I mean, anything from wood to metal to painting to drawing to, you know, meaning he did many techniques within that very narrow language. Uh, but while this 
25, I hated Liechtenstein. Like I thought he was, you know, like I thought he was a sellout and, uh, you know, forgettable. Like, you know, like he got his shtick and he just milked it to death. And now I don't feel that way at all. But I think that has something to do with age yeah, and just a different point of view. Is of wisdom another word? Was that substitutable for age? Because age could also be laziness. Is it wise? Is it virtuous, this choice? Maybe it's lazy wisdom. <laughs> lazy <Yeah>. wisdom. <laughs> All yeah. right, I'll let uh, you off. There, there is something in between there. I, I think that I actually do think that that stance probably is connected somehow to lower energy levels. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think it's somewhere in between. Okay. So let's go back to the mindset of the viewer. Uh, someone who's watching this, I know because I've personally been asked and I try and represent the audience when I sit down with, with the, you and the likes of you, uh, what, how do you develop a personal style? I think this is one of the hardest questions that I get asked because the answer, anytime I try and answer it, ends up just being like, I do a lot of work. Mm -hmm but I know I can get a better answer out of you than the one that I've been using. So how do you, A, how do you know that something is your style and something isn't, and mm -hmm. how, you know, how do you develop it? I think that the, the, this will sound a little bit like a cop-out, but I really don't mean it as a cop-out. I actually think it's, it's sound advice. I would say you develop a personal style by not worrying about it. Uh, it will come by itself, just and it with will repetition be or with, with volume? With or? stuff that I think, uh, no, I'll say that later. I think that it will be much more difficult to get rid of that personal style again than it will be to develop it. Uh, it is now much easier to develop a personal style than it ever was because there's many more feedback mechanisms. And I do think that developing a style does have something to do with feedback. Uh -huh. I mean, in our case, for sure, it's sort of like we tried stuff out. Like, you know, there was, you know, things where, I don't know, handwriting played a role. But this was still pre-internet pre yeah. time, pre-rapid feedback time, and things worked well. So we allowed ourselves then in the studio to try that again and maybe more intensively or more uh, uh, with more production behind it or from a different kind of angle and it worked again or it worked even better so we tried another version of it and then that sort of like became its thing where typography was clearly still made by a human but not and possibly remotely based on handwriting, but wasn't really handwritten anymore. But this really developed over time and had something to do with feedback. I'm not sure if I could have, or I myself, if I could have developed that in the same way without a talk to an audience. And I think that in many ways, everything we do in the studio is very audience oriented. Part of the reason why I do think the show is successful, the, the exhibition is successful, is because we design for audiences. Like mm -hmm. we have, uh, and so, and I think that there, in this case, that is possibly a different stance than most artists would have. You know, what about what about putting Stefan in this work, or I'm, do you look at an audience and put Stefan in that audience and then make something? I mean, I think that in the world of design companies. 
be probably would be at the very forefront of doing personal work, like you know, or oh, for sure. like you know, meaning or that our own opinion, sometimes our own, like be as physical people, would be in the work, you know, and uh, I think that that's part of my whole anti-modernist. Uh, Ooh, this is good. Anti-modernist. Uh, impression. I mean, you know, I grew up, you know, with Vienna, with Adolf Loos, who was a big, uh, a big influence on the Bauhaus. I grew up, like, you know, in that entire world and found some of those ideas are very valid for their time. Some of them were already stupid in the 1930s, <laughs> but uh, some very valid for their time. And many by now through incredible overuse and through the fact that these have been the status quo in communications, in product design, in architecture for a hundred years, unbelievably boring and incredibly lazy and totally, utterly unquestioned. You know, there are so many modernist statements or modernist directions or strategies that were quite smart in the 20s that are utterly, totally <laughs> stupid right now, like that are crazy on contemplation that we are still doing them out of because nobody questions them and because it's that's like how it's done yeah. it's how it's done exactly yeah so you're putting yourself in your work and yet you're still designing with an eye for an, a particular audience yes yeah who would you say the audience for the happy installation or the happy exhibition was then but Un uh, unhappy people no no art, no art, i think it's work. basically it's uh it's people who, obviously people who go into a museum, which is you know a, a slice of the yes. a slice of the audience, uh -huh. that are ready to relate to somebody else, and for a while think about larger questions in life, and it turns out that there was a lot of people, and that's a pretty large question. That's a big, it's a and it's in a, but it's also a pretty large big, group yeah, who is happy to do that. Fair enough. And it also turned out that because of these exhibits, we're mostly in museums where normally contemporary art is shown, that a whole bunch of people also turned out to be a very large group of people who go into even mass audience, mass places like MoMA or so, kind of expect to understand nothing. Yes, they go and see whatever the water lilies or so, and they do understand that. But there is a lot of, there is a vast chunk of contemporary art that is shown in places that are where masses of people go in and out, but really is unrelatable yeah. by, a very, by, by a big chunk of the, of the population because you need to know too much about 20th century uh, art. You need to need know, do the know creator, about the peculiars yeah, yeah, yeah. and particulars of that thing. It's almost like solving a crossword puzzle. Or a private language that 10 people are in or something. Exactly. So yeah, it's a yeah. very small. Yeah. So I want to turn the conversation toward you in particular because mm -hmm. I like that you put so much of yourself in your work. You, like, as you said earlier, you, you were literally physically in much of, mm -hmm. you know, in, in many of your pieces, whether it be a photograph, uh, your hand in design or typography, um, your film, for example, mm -hmm. you're the star of your own film. Um, and I'm sure through the film, I, I, I have, I've only seen the parts that you've shared, so I'm looking forward to seeing the parts that you call unflattering about yourself. But let's talk about you. What, are there, are there a set of habits that you have that you feel like 
put you in the right space for creating or are you a machine? Like, do you have to um, manicure yourself to be in a, in, a, in a creative mood or you just sit down and do the work? Is there, is there a set of habits? I mean, I'd say that, you know, like I would say most designers or most people who have been doing this professionally, there's a couple of tricks that you have, you know, meaning they are sort of like the rarer ones is like, I love coming up with ideas in a train. Train. In a train, yeah. I think that combination of being in a, in a thing that moves forward yeah. and being able to look at a landscape on eye level that flies by and it's sort of interesting, but not as interesting as is that it would interrupt a flow of thoughts, mm -hmm. but also not as boring as a white wall. And the fact that I think that you're still moving forward, so you kind of feel that you're working, you know, <laughs> or there right. is something going on. Yeah, you're a part of something. Uh, allows me to, to really think a thing through. And uh, let's say... Is it the equivalent of a shower? Is it quiet? Is it... Uh, or it's much it, better in a yeah. shower. I can think much better in a train than in a shower. And I still, maybe I'll do that at one time in, in my life. I could definitely see like a design course or workshop was all given in like, you know, in just renting out a, a train compartment, like, you know, one wagon or two of them and have that I drawn it. over all, you know, to have that sort of like attached to trains all over the country and do a one month workshop with, you know, whatever, 20 people. I see an amazing creative live workshop in the future. That would be incredible to just oh, go that across. Could be a fun thing. Go across yeah, the country with a fun you. thing, yeah. Um, all right, so that is a thing. Um, how about, is there a part of this, like, one of the things that's confused me a little bit about your, uh, the time off, mm -hmm. is because you work six or seven years yep. and then you take a year off, yep. but what does the off year look like? Is, is that a part of your routine? Is that what makes you sort of successful? Allow yourself this breathing room to stand away and do you not require yourself to make money then? Are you just exploring or are you literally off like desert island or deserted island with your hands above your head and your feet up? No, I'm working and I'm working hourly properly. So it's, uh, it's I clearly, could also, I don't know, sit on the beach and read. And it just turned out in the two sabbaticals that I had done that that's not what, I'm, what I like to do at all. I mean, I did yeah. zero of that, zero. Uh, I'm actually, uh, I found that for me, it works best to really have a plan for that year. So I normally have a whole list of things that I would like to check out. And in the beginning of the year, I normally, uh, put that list into some sort of hierarchy and then the, the, most the most impressive thing or the most important thing to me gets five weekly hours. And then I literally put a weekly schedule together like in grade school. Yeah. And it will have like Monday eight to one o'clock, the five hour explore Balinese craft and see what we can do with it. Wow. And I literally would do that. And even on days where nothing would come to my mind, I would be forced to sit there and actually do that. How important, uh, how important is that for the success of your year off? The critical? I think it's important, yeah. I, I, I had started the first year off with deliberately no plan, and it very quickly turned out that I'm not cut out for that, meaning that it was just a waste of time 
which would have been fine too. I mean, I don't really mind wasting time, but I, it was an unhappy wasting of time, meaning I was reacting to other people's demands. I was like, you know, sending files to Japanese design magazines who wanted them. So I felt I had become my own intern and there was nothing coming out and I was becoming unhappy with spending the time that way. So then I switched into the opposite of being very structured. And it also turned out that, let's say, after doing this very structured time for three or four months, I then normally can throw that plan away or that schedule because by then so many projects are sort of like alive and working that I don't really need the structure anymore. Somebody just said to me yesterday or the day before at dinner that there's research that has come out that says that five projects is the ideal number of things for a creative, a person who, who thinks of themselves as creative to mm -hmm. be working on. And too few and you end up like overworking them and they don't, mm -hmm. you know, you, you, you get lost in the details. Too many, you can't invest enough into any one of them. How, how many things are you working on Not right bad. now? Not bad. We are in the studio, but of course it's much more than just myself. Yep. It's almost, it's basically like a dozen projects that are on the plate in different states. Across uh, oh. half a dozen or ten people maybe. Yeah, yeah. And uh, not all of these are necessarily alive at the same time. So uh, uh, I think that five sounds like, sounds, a very, sounds like a very reasonable thing. And actually, if I look back at the, at the sabbatical years, that's, uh, that's roughly there. And I find that exactly that, you know, one of the easiest techniques to get unstuck is I just switch to another project. That. If I'm like working on something and it's like I can't get further on it, rather than sitting there and you know pulling my hair out, I just switch to another one, and then that Whole other new set one. Of challenges and constraints. And yes, and that other one, even the stuckness from there might actually open up something there because it's unexpected. and I was just thinking about something else. That's great advice. And then there is a, a technique that I've been using a lot, and it's. For me, it really works super well. It's been developed by a guy called Edward De Bono, who is a big thinker on thinking. And he had a name for it, but it's all completely irrelevant. He basically says, think about the project from the point of view of something that has nothing to do with the project. Oh, I love this. And it really works super well. So this is the guy who's like, if you're going to design sneakers, think of the uh, a plastic Coca-Cola bottle or something. For and then. Is that yeah. the, you, you look at the new product through yeah. lens of anything else. Yeah. Can you put any two things together? Yes. We can, for example, let's do it. Like, are you working on something? I'm working on a lot of things. So tell me something that you need an idea for. Okay, I need an idea for, oh man. I need to hone the idea for my next book. A book on photography or a book on what? A book on creativity. Okay, so you're doing a book on creativity yes. and let's say you're in my normal stance of okay we have to design this book on creativity, what should we do? Like you know, I don't know, like let's look at other books of creativity, let's talk to Let's talk to the audience, see what they really like about creativity. And, you know, let's do all that. Sure, and likely pick up 10 Tashin books. Exactly. Or, yeah. yeah, and likely your book on creativity would look somehow similar than all the other books on creativity. And now we say, let's forget about this. Let's design the book on creativity with this water, starting with this water bottle, start with this water glass. Okay, can we do something with fluids? Does it have a cover in fluids? Does it have... Can the cover be transparent? Can the cover be transparent? Can we have a reflection? Can the whole book be transparent? 
Is it possible to have the book printed on so super thin paper that it bleeds through, or can it be book can we print the same book on so such thin paper that we have every image printed from both sides and we only see them together? Maybe there's something in there that uh, that it's almost like the whole thing. How about a book on creativity that has a thousand pages, but it's only this thin, so it's like super dense, and you can still sort of like have it with you, but it's almost like a Bible kind of thing, you know? Okay, we're getting somewhere. I'm yeah. not sure if that's the answer, but at the end, the, it gave at the you end, five ideas that you didn't have before. Yeah, yeah, and the water glass will be completely material. It's gone. Like already, when we are at the Bible thing. <laughs> We are, yeah. the water, it's completely blown out. Nobody will ever know we started with the water glass. And there is very good scientific explanations of why this works so brilliantly, because the best parts of my brain, the ones that work the best, are the oldest parts of the brain. The crocodile. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, the, and that part of the brain is fantastic in repetitions. Like, you know, I can talk to you, I can pick up this water glass without ever even thinking that I'm picking it up and continue to work because my brain does that stuff so well. And so if I ask, for, uh, if I ask it for a new idea on a book on creativity, what it immediately will give to me, and, immediate, and it did, is what I did before. Because those synapses have the biggest connection. And immediately what came to my mind as we were talking was, oh, I could, I could drill holes through it because we did that. So my, the, the initial thing that my brain gives me is the stuff that I did before. If I reject that because I don't want to do this, I don't want to drill holes through the book anymore, the next thing that it will give to me is stuff that I've seen before. Because that's the, the next it's, good it's synapses connections. Yeah. Got it. What was Ed the name of the guy who... who Edward de Bono. Edward de Bono. Yeah. Okay. And so the water glass basically forces my brain to say, no, you start thinking from somewhere else. You start thinking from a new synapsis. You will go through the book of creativity, but you will, I will force you to go through parts of the brain that you would normally, be, where you don't have a connection yet. Hence the Bible or whatever. Brilliant. So you, is that, would you consider that a hack or are you, like, is that just a trick that you go to and you go to that trick every day? Is yeah. It, yeah? Go to it all, quite often. It, sadly, I have to admit, works the best with an audience. Oh, because you, you've got Because the, there's a little the pressure there. You uh, know, it's the same reason I suspect people like, who are really good improvisers in jazz, recording their their, their, uh, their improvisation records in front of an audience because they need that sort of pressure, pressure to actually have to perform now. Yeah. That pressure that I literally had to come up with the idea for the Bible yes. here. With cameras does it and me. And yeah, does yeah. It, does it, it, it works well for it. How important is doing stuff you're passionate about? You, you, you talked early on about the music influence. Um, you've won a Grammy for your work. Is that you, you, you're literally sitting around saying, I love music, I love design, I'm going to design for the music world. I did do that, yes, very much so. And it felt like uh, that was, uh, and when I opened the studio, that was definitely, we even had a subtitle design for the music industry. So yes, I think that that, uh, that was part of it. And that in the opening phase, definitely created that little warm and fuzzy feeling in my stomach uh -huh. that just felt, yes, this is right. Like, I really want to do that. How important is that to have to I think, move yourself forward? I think that's very important, uh, specifically for in times when the chips are down. 
And I found that in any endeavor that you do, doesn't matter if you're in design or in film or if you're an entrepreneur, there will be times when it's difficult. I think it's part of the, like if you do things that involve the, the help and the teamwork with other people, which is basically everything, everything. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. then you will have trouble. It's just, it's just how, I think it's, it's what it means to be human. And I think in these times when you have trouble, it was always very helpful to me to be able to say, you know, I really wanted this. Like, like to think back of the time when I had the fuzzy feeling and say, I really wanted this, so I better like shut up and find a way to get through this. Because without that, I would have never finished a film, for example, never. Like this film had so much trouble and so much deep trouble. You know, our co-director dying or with all that meant from a friendship point of view to a production point, production point of view. Yes. Yeah. Uh, me not knowing, like me knowing this is bad, but not knowing how to fix it on the lighter side of things. I'm not comparing the two, but it's just like it just had so much trouble that if I wouldn't have the possibility to say, okay, there was a time when I thought this is a really good idea to do, I really should do this, and now finish, suck it up and finish this thing, uh, I would have never finished it. Yeah. How important is the self-talk? The self-talk? Yeah, you were having a dialogue with yourself there. Like, I mean, I think that do you I reflect you, you, quite a bit. I, I do a weekly diary. Uh, every week, like religiously since many, many, many years, I take at least 10 minutes out and I quickly write sometimes just what's happening, sometimes what's, uh, what feel? I could improve on or like, you know, uh, and it's rereading that stuff has been sometimes helpful. So it's more than just getting on the page, you go back and reread it. Here and there, not yeah. often, but here and there when, uh, you know, on a Saturday morning I might sort of like go back and Sometimes I come across a thing where I complain about something that I've been complained about that I've been complaining about last week, and suddenly I figure out, oh my God, I've been like complaining about this four years ago, and I still haven't done anything about it. So maybe now is finally the time to do something about it. What's one thing that uh, people don't know about you that would be they would be surprised if they found out? Well, I think I've been pretty open uh, as far as my interesting and not so interesting parts of my life are concerned. So I'm not a hundred. There's a. I'm not sure if I could answer that 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 question easily. Maybe I'll pin you down on that one a little later. I'm trying to be yeah. cognizant of of our time together. Uh, I still want to take a picture of you. Is there anything that? that uh, we haven't talked about today that you'd like to tell, tell the world? I mean, you, you know, you, you just said you're pretty available and open. You put out a ton of work and you're very uh, prolific. But is there a message? Oh, I, I mean, I'm super uh, excited about the film, but what uh, would you? Very quickly, like, uh, basically, Jesse got me, uh, got me interested in, in posting on Instagram. And I've been doing this, uh, you know, big series on album covers. And I think that, well, probably two stances. One is that 
very surprisingly to me, this whole world of design and music that basically looked very dead is completely reborn in vinyl in a very different stance to the point where I would say the last year saw more high quality pieces being created than any other year in the history of wow. album cover design. Wow. Uh, if you're interested in that or if you want to see if this could possibly be true, follow me on Instagram at Stefan Sagmeister. Uh, and the second part that's sort of related to that is I really, really got interested in the subject of beauty. And there, of course, human-made beauty uh, to, and specifically how unbelievably important it is to function, like how something that actually is really thought out well from a formal point of view tends to work so much better in how things that have been made carelessly and only with function in mind, where the entire direction of the makers went into making this work as good as possible, in so many cases they wound up with something that didn't work at all, even though that was their entire intent. And I think there is, uh, it's a, that's a very big field that I think I'm gonna spend some serious time exploring. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, I could handcuff you to this couch and talk to you for another two hours, but I know you have to get going. Uh, to the folks at home, follow Stefan, not just on, on Instagram, but uh, across the web, you will not be disappointed. And if you can see the Happiness Project, give us, where, where's it gonna be next? It's the, uh, the, the Happy Show will uh, open in, on, in the April 22nd, I think, in the, uh, MAC, M-A-K Museum in Frankfurt. Uh, the Happy Film will uh, first go, go through a Tribeca uh, Film Festival, that's April 16th, and then uh, we'll see how we will get distribution if we do it online. If there is a theatrical release, we don't know yet. Incredible. Thank you, my friend. Thank good, you. Good to see you again. Pleasure. Folks, signing off, stay tuned. There will be another one of these badass interviews coming at you very shortly. All right, that about wraps it up. But before I let you go, I want to say, A, a huge thank you. B, let you know how to find me. I'm basically at Chase Jarvis all over the internet, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, I'm very active on Snapchat. You guys should check it. If that's a platform that you enjoy, uh, check me out there, as well as all the other ones. It's a super important ask for you to share this also. Uh, subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, and or Stitcher. And most definitely, if you're willing to put in a little bit of extra juice, please leave a review on iTunes. That helps make our podcast more visible. Last place that you can check it out and, and get some additional value is in my newsletter, which is chasejarvis.com slash VIP. That is where I put content out before it hits my social platforms. So that's sort of the insider track. Leave comments all over the internet for me. I will track them down and respond as best I can. And uh, again, huge thank you for listening to the podcast. And I'm looking forward to the next episode already. I hope you'll join me next time.